The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. It's been a while since we were together because of Easter and Tea Room and all of that sort of thing, but we are back in our study of Romans chapter 8. Incidentally, this is one of the last three classes that we have before the summer break. So after today, there will be two more classes that we are scheduled to have, and then we will take the break for the summer. So just bear that in mind. But today we are resuming our study of Romans chapter 8, this extraordinary chapter in Paul's epistle to the Romans, and we're going to take a look at that verse today that perhaps has been more comfort uh, to believers than maybe any other passage in the New Testament, this great passage of assurance, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. So we will start at Romans 8.28, and then we're going to go ahead and read through verse 30. And then if we have time, we'll go on from there to verse 31. So Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we said that this really is a word of encouragement to believers because it is the promise that you and I, as the children of God, are firmly in His hand, and that nothing, nothing is going to come into our lives that is going to take God by surprise. Now, it may take us by surprise, but nothing is going to happen to us that is going to shock or surprise the Lord. Furthermore, Paul is saying that if we belong to Christ, He is actually working all things, emphasis on that word all, all things together for our ultimate good. And that should be a great encouragement for us. He said, indeed, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't even know what we're supposed to ask for, but the Holy Spirit who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And because God the Holy Spirit is doing that, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things will work together for good. Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf and on my behalf. We'll come to this in a little bit. The word that is used for intercession or the word that is sometimes used in the New Testament to describe the Holy Spirit as the intercessor is the word parakletos, the paraclete. And we'll come to that in a little bit. 
But that's Paul's point, is that we can be encouraged because even in those times when we don't know what to ask for, the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf so that all things may work together for our good. Now, I think we would all agree that sometimes this is hard to believe. It's hard for us, especially when you get bad news from the doctor, or perhaps you have a financial setback, or there are problems in the family with your children, or whatever it may be. It's, it's hard. It's, it's difficult for us to see how in the world God is working all things together for our good. All things means even the tragedies, the disasters, the disappointments in our life. God, in his sovereign will, is working those things together. Now, in order to understand this, we have to set some boundaries. Because this is a promise, but it is a promise, and we need to understand this first and foremost, that is only for Christians. I said this to you before, that we all suffer in this life. Jesus was emphatic about that. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. I always point out, he didn't say, you may have tribulation, or it's likely you will have tribulation. Sooner or later, you will have it. Now, it's true, some people face greater tribulation than others, more tribulation than others, but we all face it sooner or later. And we all face, of course, the prospect of our own mortality. So, Jesus was right. In this world, you will have trouble to a varying degree. We will all face difficulty, tribulation, etc., so when he says that God works all things together for good, he doesn't mean that God works all things together for good for everybody who suffers. What he says is, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. This is why I said to you in the past, we all suffer, but the Christian suffers for a purpose. All right? So we all suffer in this world because we live in a fallen world and because we're all tainted by sin. But because we belong to God, He works even those tragedies together for our good. So we need to remember that this promise in Romans chapter 8, which has brought great comfort, as I said, is a message of comfort for believers only. Second thing we need to understand is that when Paul talks about our good, God working all things to our good, we need to understand that what he really means is that we be made into the likeness of Jesus Christ. When Paul says God is working all things together for our good, our ultimate good in his mind is not that we live a carefree life or that we live a life that is devoid of disappointment or hardship. No, what God is doing is he's taking even the tragedies and the difficulties and working them together that we may be made into the likeness of Christ. You know, you ask many people today, what would be good for them? And you're going to get a host of answers. We all know this. I mean, we live in this very materialist world. And so many people are going to say, well, it's, it, it, it's physical things that we can touch and see. Furthermore, we live in a materialistic world. And so for many people, the ultimate good is to have enough money. I mean, isn't that what most people want? They think that if they have enough money, they are going to be absolutely satisfied and happy. I hate to tell you, but I have known many wealthy people over the course of my life, and they are, some of them, the most miserable people I have ever known. 
Their money has not brought them a great deal of satisfaction or serenity. I had a couple in one of my former parishes, and um, they lost a daughter tragically, and uh, they were extremely wealthy. Her father had owned a string of newspapers uh, in Alabama and some of the other states. And um, when I went to see them on the death of their daughter, which was a tragic death, um, the daughter was murdered, as a matter of fact, I went and I spoke with them, and she said this to me. She said, let me tell you, the worst thing that can ever happen to a young couple in their 30s is that they inherit an enormous amount of money. She said, because unfortunately, the money that we had ruined our daughter in terms of the way she lived. So we think that, well, money's the answer to all of our problems. So I just had enough money that would make everything better, but that is not necessarily the case. Other people will say, well, it's to be healthy. If you have your health, you've got everything. Well, that's not necessarily the case. I've also known people who have been sickly, who've had terrible diseases, illnesses, and yet they are among the happiest, the most contented, the most peaceful people. Whereas I've known people who are absolutely obsessed with their bodies, they work out day and night, they eat all of the right things, and they're lean and mean. <laughs> so, being healthy is not necessarily make a person happy either. And let's be honest, sooner or later, whether we want to think about it or not, doesn't matter how you live, time is going to run out. Your health is going to give way. It's a case of diminishing returns. It's what they call the third law, of, the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is headed toward entropy, toward decay. That's the world in which we live. Some people will say, well, our ultimate good is to be successful, successful in the eyes of the world. As I pointed out to everybody when we launched this capital campaign this past Sunday, Everything that you and I do, every single work that we do, no matter how successful we are in the eyes of the world, in the end, it will turn to ash. Nothing in this life lasts forever. Just take a look at the long history of the empires of the world. They all rise and they all fall. Now, some of them last a lot longer than others, but none of them really brief period on the face of the earth. Rome was here for much longer, but Rome did not last forever. The British Empire was here for a time, but the British Empire, regardless of what's going to happen on Saturday morning, is hardly an empire anymore. And we don't like to think about it, but the American Empire will likewise fade away too. And so we see these things happening. And we need to understand that everything that we do, every work of men, is destined to turn to ash. Now there is a work, of course, that you and I can do that is lasting, that is eternal, and that is when we lead other people to Jesus Christ. Because when they come to know Him, they become creatures of eternity. We are all creatures of eternity, but they become creatures who will live with Christ forever. That's the work that lasts. But anything else that we do is going to turn to dust and ash. Furthermore, I've known many people who are successful in the eyes of the world, and yet they are not happy. They are not content at all. I, I love that scene in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul is brought before the Roman governor and before King Agrippa. 
You may remember that scene. It's at Caesarea Maritima. Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem, and he's taken there to Caesarea, which was where the Roman headquarters were located. The Roman governor only came to Jerusalem during the great festivals. The headquarters for the Roman province was at Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima. There were a number of Caesareas in the ancient world, Caesarea Philippi, for example. Caesarea Maritima was up the coast, Maritima meaning sea, maritime, by the sea. And that was the headquarters of the Roman government. Paul had been arrested and imprisoned there for about three years under one Roman governor who was corrupt, who never really heard his case, even though he was a Roman citizen. And he was recalled to Rome, and Paul was just languishing there in the prison. A new governor comes in. His name is Portius Festus. Uh, he's there to sort of clean up the situation. He comes in, hears that there's a Roman citizen who has been languishing in prison without a trial. And that's a serious problem. And so the governor wants to hear Paul's case right away, but he doesn't understand anything about the Jewish laws. He doesn't understand much about the Jewish religion. He's new to the area, and so he appeals to the Jewish king, who was really a vassal king. He, he served at the pleasure of the Romans, and his name was Herod Agrippa. And Herod comes in, we're told, along with the governor. The governor comes in and says, you've got to explain this situation to me. I don't understand the ins and the outs of Jewish law. I don't understand why this Roman citizen has been accused of capital crimes. Furthermore, he's appealing to Caesar, which is the right of a Roman citizen, and I can't send him off to the emperor unless I have something to say about the case against him. So I need your help. And we're told that King Herod and his wife came to hear Paul's case. And I love the language that is used for this. They came with great pomp. That's how it's described. That's the word. And they came in. Now, you can imagine that. It is exactly what we're going to see on Saturday. Pomp. Ceremony. You know, the king, it's one of the reasons why we're enamored with the British. My goodness, we fought a revolution to get rid of these people, and all of a sudden now we're just enamored by them. We can't wait to see it, the mounted cavalry and the red-tuniced guards and the beef eaters and the crowns and the jewels and all of that sort of thing. That's how Herod came, with great pomp. And then Paul is brought in. This man, Paul who is what? Well, by this point in his ministry, Paul has suffered a great deal. He's been shipwrecked, and he's been arrested. He's been beaten with rods. He's been publicly flogged. He's got a physical ailment that has been giving him torment. He calls it a thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. But Paul's probably coming in. He's an older man by this point. Some depictions show him balding, so maybe he's becoming bald. We don't know. If his affliction was eyesight, which is what many people think, then probably he was squinting. And there is Paul in the midst of all of this pomp, this worldly power, standing there. There's an old hymn that says, Zion stands by hills surrounded, Zion kept by power divine. All her foes shall be confounded though the world in arms combined. Well, that's the way it was. It was Paul, like Zion, surrounded on all sides by all of this worldly, worldly power and pomp and ceremony and weightiness. But you know what the word for pomp is in Greek? Fantasia. A word which means fantasy. It's just fantasy. 
It's not the stuff that is real. And our worldly success, it is just fantasia. It will one day fade away. Who remembers Herod Agrippa today? Who remembers Portius Festus? Some of you have never even heard of Portius Festus. But how many people today remember that balding, squinting man that stood down there and bore witness to Jesus Christ? The whole world remembers Paul. So our ultimate good is not merely to be successful in the eyes of the world because we recognize that ultimately even the greatest of successes will one day fade and give way to other things. How about to be admired by the world? Is that the greatest good? That's what everybody wants. You know, we often talk with teenagers about peer pressure and not giving in to peer pressure. But I've got news for you. Peer pressure is not just a problem for children. Adults are subject to peer pressure as much as anybody else wanting to get along, uh, wanting to not rock the boat, wanting not to offend anybody. You know, one of the things I've loved about the South, and by the way, this is not a criticism, um, because I, I know you know I'm a northerner, but I've been down here longer than I was up there. So just bear that in mind. One of the things that I love about the South is the politeness, the courtesy that you do not find in Manhattan. Now that's beginning to change. I've noticed that some of those Manhattan drivers are coming down here and, and they're not as polite. But, but you know, sometimes we have to be careful about all of that politeness because we become so concerned with offending other people that we tend to, for, to ultimately offend God. You know, we don't want to speak the truth, even when the truth is spoken in love, because we don't want to, well, hurt anybody's feelings, or, as I said, rock the boat, or cause problems. Well, we want to be admired, don't we? We want to be liked. Be honest with you. How many of you like to be liked? Nobody doesn't want to be liked. There's something wrong with you if you don't want to be liked. And yet, is that the greatest good? Some of those popular people in history have been evil, wicked people. People went after them in droves, but they were terrible people. Is our greatest good to be happy? Well, the problem with happiness, as you've heard me say before, is that happiness is a fleeting thing. Happiness is an emotion, and it's always dependent on your circumstances. If things are going your way, if you are healthy, and you are wealthy, and you are successful, well, then you can be happy. But we all know that circumstances change. And sooner or later, one or all of those things is going to give out. I want you to understand something. If you've never thought about this before, I think I've said it on other occasions, but if you've never heard it, I want you to hear it today. God is not concerned with your happiness. God is concerned with your holiness. Now that's not to say that God wants you to be miserable. He does not. But his ultimate concern is not your happiness, which will change with the blowing of the wind. What God is concerned with is your holiness, likeness. 
That is the ultimate good, my friends. The greatest good that any of us can experience is to be made into the likeness of Jesus Christ, to be made into the image of the Son of God who is perfect in every respect. So when Paul says God is working all things together for our good, that does not mean God is working all things together that we might be rich, that we might be healthy, that we might be successful or admired in the eyes of the world. What it means is that God is going to take the victories in our lives as well as the defeats, the great moments and the great disappointments, and he's going to work all of those things together, no matter what happens in your life, to make you ever more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. I, I told you that some years ago I visited Istanbul, which is a great city, marvelous city. You know, it sits on the border between Europe and Asia. And you can go to the Grand Bazaar there in Istanbul. And they do things even now in the way that they used to do them in the ancient tradition. Uh, you'll see jewelers there jewelers. And what the jewelers will do is they used to, I don't know if they do it anymore today because now everything's, you know, credit cards and that sort of thing. But what they used to do in Istanbul, even when I went there the first time, is they would get coins from foreigners, silver coins. And they would melt these coins down when you bought something and they would turn them into jewelry. And they had a little pot and there was a little furnace underneath there and you would apply the heat to the furnace and you would drop in these coins. And of course coins you know have perhaps some precious metal, some silver in it, but they have a host of other things in there as well. And what they would do is they would apply heat and all the impurities would float to the surface. And they had a little instrument, they would come and scrape that off, it's called dross. And they would dispose of it. And then the, the man would go off and do something a little more, and he would continue to apply heat, and more and more dross would come to the surface. Now, the way that he knew that that metal was pure was when he could look into that pot and see his own reflection as though he was looking in a mirror. Now, what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 8 is just that. That there are going to come times in our life where God will even allow tragedies and disasters to come into our life. We have to remember that that doesn't necessarily mean that God is sending them into our lives. What Paul is saying is God is using them. He allows them to come into our lives. God can prevent suffering, pain, difficulty in our lives. You know, one of the things I've learned as a parent is that sometimes you have to let your children fail. That's something that many parents today do not understand. They want to help their children avoid any disappointment, any pain whatsoever. That's my job, to protect them. But you're not going to be around forever. Better for them to learn how to fail in a protective environment than never to learn how to fail at all until the tragedy strikes and they are at a loss. So sometimes God will allow pain and suffering to come into our lives. The book of Job is all about that. But as he does, as he applies the heat in our lives, ultimately it is for our good, that one day he's going to be able to look at us and instead of seeing you and me with all of our dross, with all of our sins, all of our imperfections, what he's going to be able to do is to look at us and see his own reflection staring back at him. My friends, that is our ultimate good. And that is what God is doing 
in everything that comes into your life and mine if we belong to him. Emphasis on that word all, for we know that God works all things together for our good. For this. Listen, Paul was not naive. He understood. He understood that life could be difficult. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians for just a moment. I made reference to this. But it's helpful to remember what the Apostle Paul himself had to endure. This is the man who's saying these things. This is not the kind of man who was a trust fund baby, who'd spent his whole life with a silver spoon in his mouth, never had any difficulties, never had any troubles, always had somebody waiting on him hand and foot. Everything was taken care of. I've known people like that. I've also noticed that they have hardly ever made a big difference in life. There's a new book that's out, it's a history book, of the Adams family. The Adams family. Now when I say the Adams family, I'm not talking about Morticia and Gomez, you understand. I'm talking about the first political dynasty in this nation's history. We talk about the Clintons, for example. We talk about the Bushes, for example. We talk about the Roosevelts, these families that made a great impact. Well, the Adamses probably had a greater impact than any of the political dynasties. Uh, you know that our, one of our great founding fathers, a man whose reputation has really been resurrected because of David McCullough's biography, Pulitzer Prize-winning biography, John Adams, who was the second president of the United States, really one of the great individuals in our nation's history, instrumental really in laying the foundation for what would become the first republic in the history, really modern republic in the history of the world. John Adams was an extraordinary man. John Adams had a son, and his son was almost equally impressive. His name was John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams likewise became president of the United States. They called him Old Man Eloquent because he could get up and, as my mother likes to say, um, convince a spider to come out of its web. I mean, he could do almost anything. <laughs> he was a remarkable man, served the country. He was a good president. He was an effective president. He was not necessarily a popular president. But he had a sense of public and civic responsibility and duty. And even when he passed from the White House, he didn't spend the rest of his life on a tour making millions of dollars talking about all the things that he accomplished. He went into the United States Congress, House of Representatives. He defended the slaves on board the Amistad, if you've heard of that. He, he campaigned tirelessly for the eradication of slavery in the United States and he died on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. A lifelong service. He had a son. His son was Charles Francis Adams. He became the ambassador to the court of St. James. You may not think that this is as impressive. Um, I sort of do. But at any rate, he became the ambassador to the court of St. James, and you'll see why I say that in just a minute. And he was the man who almost single-handedly kept Britain and France out of the American Civil War so that they did not side with the Confederacy. Almost single-handedly. Because Britain in 1862 was seriously contemplating intervening on behalf of the South. And it was Charles Francis Adams who worked tirelessly to keep them out and to preserve the Union. Now, here were three generations, extraordinary men, all civic-minded. But this book 
talks about the successive generations who had lived a life of leisure while their great-grandfather and their grandfather and their father was working tirelessly, even setting them an example. But these men had grown up with wealth. They'd grown up with privilege. They'd all gone to Harvard. And the son of Charles Francis Adams, when he asked what his great ambition was in life, he said, all I want to do is buy a house on a high street in Washington so I can look down on people in high places. And it's the account of how this family, with all of its privileges, as a consequence, sort of lost its sense of responsibility and obligation. And that can happen, you see, when you live a life of privilege. You lose that sense of responsibility of civic duty. Well, Paul was not naive. Paul understood that life can be difficult. And he also understood that sometimes difficulties are the very things that make for great people. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. He means our lives. They're like jars of clay. You knock them off the shelf, and what happens to them? They crack into a thousand pieces. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. But we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Listen to that again. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul says we are knocked down, we are persecuted, we are struck but we're never in despair. We're never crushed. We carry in our bodies the death of Christ, and God is using that to manifest in us the life of Christ, working all things, all things together for our good. Now, let me give you an example from history, probably one that you're familiar with, biblical example, one of the greatest examples of God using tragedies, disasters, disappointments in our lives to bring about a great good. It's the story of Joseph. You can find it in Genesis chapters 37 through 47. A great portion of the book of Genesis is given over this very first and important book of the Bible to the story of this one man. Now, I think most people probably know the story of Joseph, or they know at least a part of the story of Joseph, don't you? And it's always the part with Joseph and his coat of many colors. Perhaps you know it because it was a Broadway hit, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. But let me tell you the real story of Joseph, which involves that, but so much more, and how this man impacted history, including you and me and our lives today. So Joseph was the son of who? 
Anybody know? Somebody. Yes, yes. It's not a trick question. I just want to make sure you know your Old Testament history. That's right. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So Jacob is one of the great patriarchs. And he had a series of sons, one of whom was this young son named Joseph. Now at the time, initially, Joseph was the youngest of the sons. He was greatly loved by his father. You know, parents really shouldn't have favorites, but sometimes that is the case, simply because they're more like them in terms of personality. They enjoy the same sorts of things, whatever it may be. But this was the case with the patriarch. He, he loved Joseph more than any of the others. It wasn't because of anything that Joseph had done. And, and for poor Joseph, it turned out to be a liability rather than an asset, to be perfectly honest with you, because all of his brothers and sisters hated him. His brothers hated him because of the fact that he was favored. And of course, you know the story. His father gave him this wonderful coat, this beautiful coat that was, that was costly and so forth, which just made them hate him all the more. And then to make matters worse, Joseph was a dreamer. He'd have these dreams, he would have these visions, and in the visions, I mean, he was just, he was sort of innocent. He was, he, to be perfectly honest with you, he was naive. And he would tell these visions to his brothers. And when he told these dreams, he always came out on top. That's why I say he's naive. Kind of stupid, to be honest with you, at that point. You don't, you don't say that sort of thing. But nevertheless, he did. And the result of all of this was that they just seethed with hatred toward their brother. And they just absolutely hated him. And on one occasion, while they were out tending the flocks and so forth, Joseph comes out with a message for them, and he tells them about another one of these dreams that he has, and they said, that's it, we're done. We're, we're finished. Let's kill him. I mean, this is the point. They reached the point where, and, and we laugh about it, but I know families, and I know that sometimes brothers and sisters and siblings don't get along. Let's be honest. Sometimes you haven't spoken to your sister in 20 years, or you haven't spoken to your brother in 30 years. And, 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 and quite frankly, if you never see them again, you're perfectly fine with that. Well, that's how it was with these brothers. They absolutely hate and despise Joseph. They are determined they're, they've had enough of his dreaming, and they're going to kill him. But then some of them pricked in their conscience, and they thought, well, we can't really kill him. I mean, he is flesh and blood. I don't know. We need to get rid of him. So what they do is they take him and they throw him into a dry cistern, into a well. I always imagine them sitting up there on top and having lunch. He's down there in the hole, and they're trying to decide what are we going to do with him. And we're told that while they were trying to determine what to do with their brother, whom they hate, this traveling caravan comes along. These people called the Ishmaelites. And they say, look, here's what we'll do. We are going to sell him into slavery. That way, we don't have his blood on our hands, but we're still rid of him. Well, what are we going to tell them? They rub the blood all over the, the, the cloak and so forth, and they're going to go back and take this message to their father. Meanwhile, they sell him off to the Ishmaelites, who take him down to Egypt, where he is purchased, as slaves were in those days, by a captain of the Egyptian guard, a man by the name of Potiphar. And so Potiphar puts Joseph in his service. Well, Joseph is a handsome young man. He's a bright young man. He's an industrious young man, and he works hard for Potiphar. And, and Potiphar's impressed with him. He, he makes him the head of the whole household. 
But you've all heard the expression, no good deed goes unpunished. Well, that was the way it was for poor Joseph. He was young, he was handsome, he was industrious, and he caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. You know, you can't make this stuff up. You know, you don't need to watch the Kardashians, folks. You can read the book of Genesis. It's all there. And so what happens, of course, is that Potiphar catches, you know, Joseph's eye, and she wants to have... Joseph for herself, but Joseph is loyal to his master, and he says, no. He said, no, I, I, I can't. You may be attractive. You may be wonderful. Uh, no, I'm going to be loyal to the, my master, to Potiphar. Well, there is no fury like a woman scorned, and she becomes angry about this, angry at the rejection. She doesn't like, who does this servant think he is to reject her, this powerful, wealthy, attractive woman? And so, when her husband comes home, she accuses Joseph of trying to rape her. Well, in that kind of a situation, Potiphar should have known the kind of woman that he had married. But, you know, you're going to take your wife's side in the situation, so that's exactly what he does. And he arrests Joseph and has Joseph thrown into prison. Now, here's a man who's done nothing wrong. He's been betrayed by his brothers, separated from his father, sold into slavery, into a foreign land. He tries to work for his freedom. He's trying to do all the honorable things, and no matter what he does, he still is falsely accused, and now he finds himself in prison with no chance of parole. Now, meanwhile, there is this cellmate, and um, cellmate is talking to Joseph, and Joseph is telling him about dreams. And Joseph is there for some years, as a matter of fact, there in the prison. And, and he tells dreams. He has these dreams, as I said, and he's able to interpret these dreams by the power of God. And people are fascinated by that. Well, at any rate, his cellmate is released and for the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh finds himself troubled by a whole series of dreams that he cannot explain. And in those days, people took dreams seriously. They believed that dreams were signs, they were omens. And so Pharaoh is really struggling with these dreams that he has and what the dreams mean and, and, and the implication of all of this. And he's troubled. It's keeping him up at night. And he calls in all of his magicians and he calls in all of his interpreters and nobody can interpret the king's dreams. And he is getting more anxious, more frustrated. And finally, his cupbearer says, well, you know, when I was in prison, He'd fallen out of favor with the king, then he got released, and he was back in favor with the king. He said, I, I knew a fellow who did time with me, and, and he knows how to interpret dreams. And the king says, well, bring him here. I want to hear him. So Joseph is brought up. This man who'd been down in the depths, now brought into the presence of Pharaoh. Into the presence of Pharaoh. And the king tells Joseph his dreams. And what Joseph is able to do is to interpret those dreams. And Joseph tells him what the dreams mean is this, that there will be seven years of plenty in Egypt, but they would be followed by seven years of famine. The dreams themselves are pretty fascinating about cows and that sort of things, and fat cows and skinny cows eating the fat cows, and it's all really interesting. You need to go back and read it for yourself. But at any rate, he interprets the dreams, and he said, this is what it means. There's going to be seven years of plenty in Egypt, but they're going to be followed by seven years of severe famine. 
And everybody in the ancient world understood what famine meant. It was devastating. And he said, but king, your majesty, you can be ready for this if you prepare during these years of plenty for the years of famine that will follow. And the king said, well, if this is true, I need a man to manage all of this. And that's exactly what he did. He said, Joseph, you will be my right-hand man. You will manage all that I own so that we are prepared for this disaster that is to come. And that is exactly what Joseph did. For seven years, he managed all that Egypt had, and it was a series of bumper crops. Everything grew plentifully by the Nile. But those seven years, just as Joseph had prophesied, were followed by seven years of severe famine. But because they were ready, the king elevated Joseph to the second highest position in the land. This boy had come from nothing is now second only to the most powerful temporal ruler on the face of the earth. And people from other lands are coming because they're enduring this famine and they're perishing. But Egypt seems to be surviving even prospering in the midst of this famine, and it's all because of Joseph. Well, what happens is that Jacob and his family are facing the famine too, and so he sends his sons down to Egypt to negotiate for the purchase of some food and for some crops. And these brothers have to come in and stand before the man who's now the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, Joseph. That man, whom they thought was dead and gone, that they would never see again, that they hoped they'd never see again. And they come striding in. Now, Joseph, by this point, it's been years, you understand. They don't recognize Joseph. And I'm sure that he's a tired and splendid array, so they have no idea as to who he is. Well, oh, he knows who they are. He recognizes them right off the bat. And they come in, and they plead with him, and they make much ado about how they're, they're, they're righteous men and so forth. And at one point, what does Joseph do? He lets them know exactly who he is. And they are absolutely certain they are finished. But this is what Joseph has said. He said, you intended it for evil but God intended it for good. And ultimately, what will happen is that Joseph will become the means by which he saves his family. And ultimately, the boys will go back. They will bring their father, Jacob, to Egypt. You all know the story of Moses and the Exodus. How was it that the Hebrew people ended up in Egypt? They ended up in Egypt because of the story of Joseph. And ultimately, it would be from Egypt that God would raise up a man by the name of Moses, call his people, and through that people, deliver them and bring about the Savior of the world, who is Jesus Christ. Now, there's an example of a man whose life was filled with tragedies, difficulties, false accusations, all of those things and Joseph must have thought, woe is me, but he didn't. He trusted the Lord from start to finish, and regardless of what evil men might do, God ultimately was working all things together for good. Now, here's the thing. 
We only recognize that with the advantage of hindsight, folks. I'm sure that when Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown in that cistern by his brother, locked away in prison, he was probably thinking to himself, what in the world is God doing? But he trusted the Lord. And in the end, he was able to see the work of God. If you're a Christian, the same is true for you, no matter what you're going through. And it may be years. The promise is that God is working all things for your ultimate good. Let me give you two pictures of what I'm talking about. Hanging up outside of my office, and you can go up there and see it on the second floor of the ministries hall sometime, there is a beautiful tapestry. It was given to me by some friends. Um, it's an old tapestry, and it's magnificent. It's probably worth some money, but it's a beautiful tapestry. And you know what a tapestry is, but have you ever seen the backside of a tapestry? This is what the backside of a tapestry looks like. It's all knots and it's all tangles. Well, that's the way it is with what God is doing in our lives. That's what Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is all about. There are times when our lives, when we look at them, look like nothing but a mass of tangles and knots. There's no order to any of it. But I want you to know that what God is doing, what Paul is telling us, is that God is weaving all of those things together for our ultimate good. And one day, either in this life or in glory, God is going to turn over the canvas and you are going to see the most magnificent picture of what he's been doing in your life, weaving you, shaping you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So be encouraged. Here's the other illustration. It's of a clock, and this is the way that God works. A wristwatch, if you will. Many of you are probably wearing wristwatches today. There's a clock back there on the back of the wall that I'm supposed to pay attention to. <laughs> Don't always, but it's there. Wristwatches are a wonderful thing. Imagine a very expensive wristwatch like the one on the screen. That's a Rolex. That's an amazing instrument. It's an amazing machine. But have you ever taken the back off a wristwatch and looked at the inside, at the gears? That's what it looks like. Levers going up and down, backwards and forwards, things that are spinning one direction, some that are spinning in the other direction, and you wonder what in the world is going on. But you turn it over, and what you realize is that it is operating according to plan. And that is exactly what God is doing in your life if you're a Christian today. There are times when things seem to be up and down, backwards and forwards, spinning out of control. But I promise you, God is sovereign. He is at work, and he is using everything in your life to keep things right on track so that one day when he looks at you, what he's going to see is someone who looks so much more like his son, Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is the ultimate good. So be encouraged. For no matter what the world intends, God is working all things together for our good. 
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this marvelous passage, Romans chapter 8, and that you are working all things, not just the easy things in our lives, the good things, the happy things, but even the tragedies and disasters, weaving them together into a magnificent picture. Even when things are up and down, backwards and forwards, we know that they are right on time, that you're using them to transform us evermore into the image of your Son, which is the greatest of all goods. So grant us the grace to walk by faith even when we cannot walk by sight, knowing that one day all things shall be revealed and all things shall be well. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. Finish a little early today because we don't want to start the next section until next week. Thank you.